Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here with the show. Uh, we are the proud investing partners of the San Diego Padres, so very proud to be uh, partners with them. Uh, on the show today, we've got a lot of things to cover. Uh, we do the show every, well, about once a week we do the show. It is once a week. And with me is Chase. Chase? Good to be here, as always. Yeah, that, that's right. We do the show once a week, so you better tune in. <laughs> that only happens one, once a week. You know, and I used to say all it takes is one hour a week to become a smart investor. I, I guess that's the start <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I guess one hour a week to become a smarter investor. Smarter <laughs> investor. There we go. Smarter <laughs> investor. <laughs> and, and it does take a lot more than one hour yeah. a week to, to do the investments. But, we okay, we're the... And, and I, I, I think we can say this. We're one of the smartest hours on radio. How's that? Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that, I guess. <laughs> but uh, as always, too, you want to join yeah, the show. Get me out of the situation, yeah. <laughs> you want to join the show here. You got a stock you're looking at, buying, selling. Maybe it's a hold. We'll, we'll break down those fundamentals for you. Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Well, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we do have to talk about the consumers. We're going to mention uh, what's going on retail sales. We're also going to talk about uh, housing market. Uh, things are kind of like, well, we'll talk more about that in a minute here. Uh, investing, crazy time for investing right now. We'll talk about that. And then we do have our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, be come on later in the show. Uh, great question here. Should you pay off your mortgage? He's going to answer that question for you. Well, well, let's talk about the consumers because based on retail sales, it looks like the consumer is softening, but I would not say to problematic levels. In the month of April, retail sales rose 0.4% compared to last month and were 1.6% higher compared to last April. Now, one problem here is these sales do not adjust for inflation and with inflation increasing 4.9% compared to last year, it appears most, if not all that gain, can be attributed to higher prices for goods and services. While the headline number looks soft, there are still areas where the consumer remains extremely strong. Food services and drinking places saw an increase of 9.4% compared to last year. Health and personal care stores were up 7.9%. Gosh, 9.4% increase in drinking. Does that mean there's a lot of drunk people walking around? Or what, oh, it's food, that? too. <laughs> there we go, food, too. Okay. <laughs> and also, we know restaurants have increased their prices because food's yes. gone up, so yes. that needs to be accounted and for. And so did the tips increase as well, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, too, that, that was up in the, the month was non-store retailers had a gain of 8%. And, you know, I, I got to go back here. I, I do think it's, I don't want to say funny, but, you know, the, the health and personal care stores, that's like one of the only items that's doing well. But but what do you got to do if you're going out? You got to look good. So oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm assuming well, that's why it's going out. Do people still, I mean, I know I like dressing up. Are people still, 
I, sometimes I see people. Well, it's not. It's not a peer apparel. Health and personal care is like <laughs> oh, makeup, makeup, hair products, hair products. I got yeah, you. Yeah. Not clothes, but you, they don't wear nice clothes, but they still make their hair and their face and everything else look good. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. So I, it's kind of an interesting correlation there that I saw last month. And, and kind of speaking of those high prices of food, again that that did increase with grocery prices remaining uh, for food and beverage stores seeing an increase of 3.7% compared to last year. And then this is, again, kind of showing the dichotomy in the economy here as areas that received, again, that COVID boom continue to struggle as furniture and home furnishing stores saw sales fall 6.4%. Electronics and appliance stores saw sales decline 7.3%. And then this one as well is quite interesting. Building material on garden equipment and supplies dealers also saw declines of 3.7%. Now, the biggest negative in the report was gasoline stations, as sales actually fell 14.6% compared to last year, as we know energy prices have fallen. They they just aren't spending as much on goods and would rather spend money on travel and dining out. And that, that's, again, I'm talking about the consumer here. Yeah. And, and it's something that the consumer does change. That's why I say, oh, people, they look at one area like, oh, you know, people just aren't going to, you know, furniture, buying furniture. The economy's bad. No, consumers changed how they're spending money. I, I, I know that. I believe Lowe's and Home Depot reported. Lowe's and, reports, I believe, this week. Oh, this week. Okay, so Home Depot reported. And um, I, I'm surprised. I think they, their sales did fail, fail, as we said here. Yeah, they're, they're looking for, uh, I believe it was comparable sales. So that's all their stores open for at least one year. Right. Uh, I believe that number was a decline of 5% for the full year, year over year. And, and that's another another stock, you know, we talk about. It's not just technology that these these stocks just hang in there because people have these feelings that, oh, it's a good company. If the sales keep cli- declining, and again, it doesn't take a lot, but quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter, eventually like, wait a minute, why, why are we paying 30 times earnings for this company when there's no growth there? That's a growth company multiple. You shouldn't be paying that, you know. So I, I Home Depot does trade at 18 times earnings, well, which is still is expensive. No, that's forward. Forward. Um, but it is expensive. If, again, you're going to have a decline in sales and yeah. earnings. So you, you don't want to see that. Definitely not on sale. Yeah. No, it's, so, it's not inexpensive. Yeah. That, that, that could definitely change. So, but to, and, and gasoline stations down, you said 14.6%. That's a positive. That's what more, more money to people's accounts, but uh, the bank accounts, but it's still. I, you know, I think oil's around $70 a barrel. I think we're going to see that probably pop up uh, somewhat uh, this summer. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that increase because China hasn't rebounded as people thought. Uh, Russia still, I think, was getting more oil out in the market than people yeah. thought. So there's kind of been these pressures pushing oil down. Uh, we do know that the government, U.S. government, has come out and said they're going to start replenishing the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, I believe it's next month, in the month of June, is when they targeted I don't know why they said that. I don't know why well, they just didn't start doing it. Well, but. because they want to wait for the price to go up so they can oh, pay more. They're, they're not sense. very smart. They should do it quietly. <laughs> you know, yeah. say, well, we did this already. <laughs> not, not even, yeah, yeah, we did this already. Instead of, we're going to do this. Well, right. the oil market will likely yeah. then take that into account. And then also you, you kind of look at, um, you know, I think demand should start to recover more in China. I, I, I think we're, we're starting yeah. to see some inklings of that. And all of a sudden that pops. If they do put more pressure on Russia, as they, they continue to talk about, I mean, that's where oil prices still could remain volatile. And, and, and that is a big problem potentially for inflation. So you, you, that's something I think you got to really keep an eye on here over the next few months. Right. We, we got to keep pumping that oil because also to India. Uh, is, is coming along as well with a growing population. They're going to be consuming more oil also. 
China opening up more. So there's going to be more demand worldwide for oil. Yeah, and it was interesting. I was listening to um, Fed Chair Powell and uh, ex-Fed Chair Ben Bernanke talk yesterday. And uh, Powell was talking about how they can't really predict supply shocks, right. but it's still the Fed's job to make sure there's price stability during supply shocks. So it, it's kind <laughs> of this catch. And that it concerned me a little bit because right. – if oil goes back up, they may then say, okay, well, we got to keep raising because then that's going to make everything else more expensive. I hope they don't keep raising. I think that would be a mistake. And, you know, I got to say it too, that the other funny thing is uh, Ben Bernanke was talking and he was saying, you know, we knew that there was basically going to be inflation because anytime there's this major event, like we saw a huge inflation surge after World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War and COVID. Right. Okay, well, if it's our job to make sure we're going through supply shocks and keeping price stability, why in the world did we think inflation was transitory? <laughs> I mean, it just it seems like they're a little bit off here. And, and we talk about Fed Chair Powell in our, in our newsletter, which we'll promote later, but I, I think he's gotten on the right path. It just took him too long. Now I hope he doesn't go overboard. Right. And, and I met Ben Bernanke a couple of times after his speech and stuff. Very smart guy, very methodical way he, he thinks. And I, I think he did a great job. Powell, I still it's still stuck in the back of my head. Don't worry, inflation's transitory, and, and no one agreed with him. And I think now he is so afraid of going back to, you know, no, we got to get down to two percent. Now he's gone completely the other side. It just, I, 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 it's a tough job. Yeah, but I, I don't agree with a lot of things that he does. Well, and I think you know Ben Bernanke was talking about it as well. One thing that he actually introduced was he introduced the press conferences and so forth for the, the Fed chairs to come out and talk about what happens right. at those meetings that kind of give me a little more transparency into it. And I think it's so important that you can't have the Fed moving all over the place. I think they need to be consistent in their messaging because the market doesn't like when things aren't as predictable. Right. They don't like uncertainty. And if you're like raising rates, cutting rates, and going all over the place, it, that that's not going to create, I think, a, a good environment for, quite frankly, anyone. Right, right. It, 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 it's true. And, uh, you know, I mean, right now, I, I believe they're done with the uh, interest rate increases. We do have another uh, inflation report coming out and jobs report coming out before they meet. So we'll see what happens with that. So, yeah, it, it'll definitely be important. And overall, still, I mean, kind of going back to the retail sales got a little bit off. But I mean, it, it's, it's things are still good. <clears throat> if the economy was bad, everything wouldn't be doing well you know right. i mean right. yeah as you said you can pull out areas that aren't doing well but but gosh i mean if you're really worried about the economy you're not going out to eat dinner no. right? you're going you're going to get you know groceries at the store and the cheaper groceries you're not going to pay up for things and you're going to go home and you're going to make dinner but right now again you go anywhere and i know we're in san diego it's a nice place to live but gosh places are packed yeah and parking lots are packed i mean if you don't get a place at a certain time like oh can't get a spot Actually, having at lunch yesterday. Yeah, uh, at our lunch. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, let's move on to the housing market because existing home sales continue to remain under pressure, as in the month of April they fell 3.4 percent compared to March and were 23.2 percent lower than April of 2022. Uh, there are several factors which are likely to contribute to the pressure, which include higher mortgage rates, challenging affordability, <clears throat> and extremely tight inventory picture. At the end of April, there were only 1.04 million homes available for sale. Now, this was actually a 1% increase compared to last April, but at the current sales rate, it represents a 2.9-month supply. Now, generally, six months is considered a balanced market. The affordability changes 
challenges excuse me, have also really hurt the first-time home buyer. And in the month of April, they made up just 29% of all sales. Historically, they're around 40%. And that's very interesting about the first-time buyer at, what, 29%. That's about half what it is historically. Uh, not half, maybe about uh, a third, we'll call it. But, mm-hmm. but still, much, much lower. And that's what kind of pushes the market because you can't move up in the, the next level on your home unless somebody's going to buy your home. And so we, you know, the first time buyer, and that's because of the, we talked about this probably months ago, about the three factors, see if I can remember them. It was the affordability, um, gosh, what was it? It was the affordability index. Index. But but it was three factors that would, that would actually take it for how housings to move around. We either had to have incomes go up, rates to go down, or prices go down. Well, those are the three. Got it. Right? Yeah. And we said we didn't see any of those happening dramatically over time, so that's going to be less housing yeah demand for housing and I, it was really interesting as well i, I was um, watching cnbc and the compass ceo and compass obviously has a bunch of realtors under right. them and so forth he was talking about he thinks there's actually going to be more supply coming out into the market and he talked about kind of life-changing events and life-changing events obviously you know you got marriage divorce right. families you know, uh, creating families, having kids. You can't be in the two-bedroom condo if you have four kids. <laughs> it's not going to work out. <laughs> uh, but the other thing he pointed to was he actually thinks the cities, and he called out San Francisco. I, I don't know. We'll see what right. happens in San Francisco. But he's like, I, I think you could actually start to see more people that moved out of the city start go, to go back into the city, and they bought on the outskirts and the further outskirts, I'm going to say, where it's now right. like a two-hour commute, going back because – he sees it too. We've talked about it a lot. People are going back to the office. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll pick on perhaps people that live here in San Diego. If you work in downtown San Diego, but you live all the way up in, you know, uh, perhaps even like Lake Elsinore or something, that's a far commute. That's something that you got to do every <laughs> single day and you might have gotten more space, but might, that might not be worth it to you anymore. So that could create, I'm going to say, a little more liquidity. And it's funny you use the word liquid when you're talking about real estate, but it, it could create a little bit more inventory, a little more liquidity in the market. Yeah. And and it's funny. I, I always say like with a jobless and so forth, anybody have a job? No, I don't. But I do know somebody that actually, I know a couple that lived in, I think it was Marietta, and they sold the home because they had to start going back in the office. It's like, it was a terrible commute. It was like an hour and plus. Traffic yeah, is traffic. rough. Yeah, so they sold the house and made, I think, a nice profit on it. Uh, but now they live in San Diego again. So I just don't know about San Francisco. They got to clean up these areas like San Francisco, New York City. I, I've heard the crime is terrible. and But that's one thing the city has to do is clean that up. Yeah, and it, it might not even just be, you know, because he kind of brought up the cities. But, I mean... There's are a lot more like nicer offices that kind of are more in the suburbs as well, yeah. where that might be where companies are focusing more. But if you have to go back to the office and, and you live, you know, an hour and a half away from your office, you got to kind of weigh the, the puts and takes there and say, you know, it's not worth it to me. I'd rather, you know, sell my house and, and yeah. move closer. And our office is at Scripps Ranch. It's a class A building. And it is nice because you come to our office, you just pull in there. You park and you, I don't know, walk maybe 25 steps, get in the front door and we're right right there on the right-hand side. If you are downtown, and I like downtowns, you know, I think it's kind of exciting and so forth, but gosh, you know, you got to park, you got to park a parking structure. I mean, it'll take you 10 minutes once you park to get to where you got to go because yeah. of how far it is. So there are nice class A buildings that are closer to downtown without being downtown. 
Yeah, so. and, and I, I still continue to believe, and, and my, my philosophy to change a little bit on the, the real estate prices, uh, I just don't see how they go higher because, again, the, the first-time homebuyer just can't afford that mid-range home just keep going up. There, there's no way that first-time homebuyer, they, they can't afford it. That, right. That's the basic math. Right. So that's going to create, I'm going to say, a ceiling on prices, but also I still think there's a floor, even though I talked about a little bit more potential liquidity in the housing market or turnover in the housing market the inventory is just still way too low yeah and it seems like prices drop and then there's enough to kind of create that bottom or that floor where people say oh now i can afford it and i'll, I'll buy it right so i I, st- I still think housing for the next five to ten years is going to be in this very very tight trading range and the funny thing is you look at home prices on a graph it was in this very tight trading range for many years and all of a sudden covid happens Huge spike. Spiked up. Yeah. That was a very rare event that, that occurs in housing. And I mean, it's not going to see, you know, 15% housing price gains in 2024, 2000. I just don't see that happening. We can't afford it. Yeah. And I, I remember I bought a house in Scripps Ranch in uh, 2012. And for three, four years, like, yeah, worth about the same amount I paid for it. It wasn't until COVID also that spiked up dramatically. And, and I think it may, maybe it went up a little bit. I, I think I paid a million two fifty for it. I think maybe by 2015, 16, maybe it was like a million three, maybe a million four. So it went up a little bit, but COVID is what really brought that price of that house up and then I sold it. So Yeah. And, and housing is really interesting when you actually think about it because I'm going to say the government has to be very careful with how pricing goes in housing because, well, number one, they want affordable housing. You don't want housing to be unaffordable for people because then they can't spend money elsewhere in the economy. Right. But number two, you can't have housing prices fall off a cliff because then <laughs> then you could have issues again with the bank and people defaulting. <laughs> and then also, too, you have less confidence because you've lost all this money in housing. So there's like this fine balance. They, they got to be able to walk when it comes to the regulations and kind of the borrowing costs that, that are implemented in the, in the housing market. And I know we have right down our government and a lot of people do. Um, but what it takes is a, a stable government. And as crazy as it is, we still have compared to the world, a stable government that keeps things going. And, and real estate, like an equity, it's going to have, a, a I think, range is going forward. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't see real estate dropping off dramatically. I don't see it like, oh, you're going to make all this money. I, I think it's going to be like back in 2012 where it's going to be around the same price probably two, three, four years from now <clears throat> to where there's no catalyst. And it took that big jump. Yeah. And same thing happens in equities. They take a big jump, then they kind of – Take a breather. So I think with housing. And, and that's the funny thing is people, when they look at their total return, they don't look at all the years uh, of doing nothing. Right. And all of a sudden it spikes up and it's like, oh, yeah, I've averaged like 10%, <laughs> but it all came in one year. One year. I mean, it, it, it's it's understanding how the numbers work and how price gains work and how they impact your total return. And, you know, I'll, I'll say – and. People always think we're anti-real estate. I'm not anti-real yeah. estate. I just like how easy stocks are compared to real estate. And you can do very well in good quality stocks. And when you look at it, it's it's no different. You look over the longer term. And companies, stocks, they can go nowhere again for two, three years. And all of a sudden, you're, you're four. Wow, you get this huge gain. Yeah. And now, yeah, I've, I've, I've done very well over the longer term. Well, with that, let's talk about investing. Because over the last few weeks, so the markets and equities have seemed to go nowhere. Uh, they go up for a few days, then go back down for a few days. Uh, this can be very dis- discouraging for investors who get impatient and then settle for, well, I'm just going to sell my stocks and settle for that 5% T-bill. Over the last 12 months, institutions have pulled $333.9 billion from stocks. Over the same period, 
individual investors have pulled $28 billion from stocks. And then as of May 10th of this year, money markets actually reached a record in total assets of $5.3 trillion. Now, for patient investors, they will be rewarded. Could be next week, next month, three months from now, or even next year. By the time some people realize it, they will have missed perhaps a 5 to 10% increase in their portfolio. And don't forget what Warren Buffett said here. Investors should be greedy when others are fearful. And the other caveat is they should be fe fearful when others are greedy. And also, too, I'm going to add a little piece of that, that a good dose of patience really goes a long way as well. Yeah, and, and, and these are things, I mean, investing is, and we also say it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, because, you know, we, we I, I look at the numbers that we have, you know, the fundamentals of the businesses, and it's like, these are great businesses. They should be trading much higher than they are but they're not being recognized right now. But you don't sell them just because they're not moving. And if I have to wait six months, 12 months, I will do that. Now, the other thing we do, like we say nine out of 10 companies that we invest in pay dividends. So while things aren't moving, eh, we still collect a nice dividend. But they will move because what we are seeing um, is we are seeing sales and earnings for the company saying, yep, we're taking expenses this time, but by the third quarter, those expenses are gone we have pure income coming in. It's gonna look very, very good. Um, but maybe it doesn't even move then. You just have to be patient with the right companies. Now, the, the, the mistake that investors make is they fall in love with the company. Yeah. And they stay with the company forever just because, oh, but it's, but it's you know. Uh, and I, and Apple. I just, okay. <laughs> I say Home Depot, whatever it may be. You know, they, they, they feel comfortable because they made money in the past, and so they feel comfortable with it. But a but a stock is nothing more than ownership in a business, and it's based on the numbers and the valuations of those businesses. Sooner or later, the reality comes in. Could be next week, next month, could be next year, but that's why you don't wait for an overpriced company, and yes, it could become more overpriced, but that means a downside will be much deeper. But you can be patient with a company that's undervalued, uh, and it's hard because many times you're not in favor. Oh, I love Apple, I love Microsoft. Yeah, that's, that's fine. They're, they're great businesses, but they're overpriced. Well, you might hate a company that, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a company that's down for us now. Well, a medical company that we own. I mean, that business is not going away, but it's down now. But we still love it. But, be, oh, you know, medical, oh, you're just missing the concept of investing. And we always tell a story about a company when, when people come for the, for the uh, uh, consultation about a company I bought years ago. First year, it did nothing. Uh, actually went down. People got a little bit, ah, oh, you don't like that company. Year two, it went down again. And people said, you hear the story all the time. <laughs> it went down again. People, sell that company. I hate that company. Get out of it. It's losing money. Year three, it went up 300%. And we stayed with it, not because we loved the company, because every quarter we saw these great numbers and the fundamentals were very strong and we stayed with it. And that's how long-term we do very well. Short-term, it's just a, a gambling game. Well, and the other thing you look at, too, is when you own these businesses is there, there's going to be, again, short-term problems. And that's what we look at when we have a business. It, and it could go down over the next six months. We have a, a food company as well that went down, gosh, I think it's down like 20% in the last month. Oh, my gosh, why did we hold right. that company? It's terrible. Well, one thing we know is that the pricing environment for, and I, I'm not talking about the consumer, but for this food company to get beef, pork, and chicken, it's very challenging right now for them yeah. to get those prices. Now, that's really squeezed margins. Now, we know things are cyclical. Right. Is the environment going to be like that forever? No. 
So why would I panic and sell a business like that that's having a very hard overall economic picture at this time? It's not really the fault of their own at this right. point in time. It's really the overall environment. We know that the environment for the commodities of beef, pork, and chicken will improve over time. Right. That will then ultimately help the company. And it'd just be silly to sell a business that's doing the right things and trying to run the business properly, but just has a difficult environment they're selling into. Once that environment changes, that business does the right things, they can actually improve how they perform on the back end of it and really benefit. So people make these short-term decisions, and it's just it's really, quite frankly, silly. And I don't get worried when a stock goes down 20 30%. Right. It happens. But if you understand why it went down, it gives you a lot more comfort. Now, if a stock goes down because it was trading at 100 times earnings, and now all of a sudden they're not growing— yeah, you probably want to sell that stock yeah. and get out because that is not going to rebound and recover. That is a fundamental problem with the stock that you bought. And the other thing, too, you got to realize you're never going to buy at the absolute bottom, sell the absolute top, but you've got to have a discipline that keeps you on track. And, and it's hard sometimes because, like, oh, gosh, I wish we didn't sell that company. But we stick to the discipline, and that's how it works over the longer period. And as far as that meat company goes, I was going to make a little joke, too. It's like, well, Everybody's always going to eat meat and chicken and beef, but what about that Beyond Meat thing? What yeah. happened with that? <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out too well for <laughs> investors. I, investors. I know some people still like it, but I, I swear that it's not as popular. Like when it first came out, I think, oh, this is a great alternative. And I, I had more people I knew were eating it. I, I hardly see people eat it. And again, I, we posted on, on social media and I had a couple like, oh no, I still enjoy it. I get it from Costco and I still go use it. Like, oh, but I, I just, I don't see it as nearly no. as frequently as it was. And you, you know, all the, the fast food chains were going to be implementing it. It was going to be this huge thing. It, it, it really did not take off as, as people had anticipated. No. Yeah. So, but my point being is that that will return where people go back to, you know, having that product more. So you just got to be patient and patient doesn't mean a week or two. It can mean six months, 12 months, maybe 18 months. You got to be patient, but you will be rewarded. And you got to stay on top of that company. Cause one thing that we do that people may not know every Monday, we go over all the numbers of all the companies that we own in the portfolio. And that's very important because we can see things like, wait a minute, is something changing here? Do you want to stay? And that's what I'll go from the buy list to maybe the hold list to maybe the sell list. So very important to stay on top of things. Every quarter, listen to the conference call, look at financial statements, all these things we do. And, and I just want to say, too, with the T-bills the and stuff is, you know, let's just say you get a six-month T-bill at 5%. That doesn't mean you get 5% for the six months. It's right. at 5% annualized rate. So just very simply, you get 2.5% over six months. Right. Now, here's the problem I have with people doing this is, is you're trying to, again, essentially you're trying to predict the future. And if, let's say, the stocks... What if they go up 15% over the next six months? Even 10. Even 10. So you got 2.5%. You missed out on 10%. Now, what do you do? Again, it's like, oh, well, do I do I go back into stocks now? I missed the 10%. Do I wait? In the meantime, maybe you're like, I'm going to wait for default. Maybe it goes up another time. It's just <laughs> that's why people make so many mistakes when it comes to investing, and they try and avoid those downturns. You can't do that. You have to understand the businesses that you own they don't care about their stock price in the short term. They're still running their businesses, right. and you got to look two to three years down the road, not six months, because that's where you make big mistakes. And I'll tell you as well, that $5.3 trillion worth of money in money markets right now, again, 
the stock market starts to recover, companies in the stock market, because I, I, I want to say I don't think the stock market's going to necessarily do that well because it is very expensive because of those weights in the higher price tech companies. Right. But there's good companies that are very undervalued. Those companies start to do well. Now that money from money markets, oh, I need to get back in. Right. And now all of a sudden there's more money coming into it. That's where kind of Warren Buffett has said, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful because all of a sudden it's that contrarian approach where you don't want to be that person that's one of the last ones to go from money market to stocks because that's where you're going to miss and you're going to buy high. Right. And what I'm going to say too, it's using the right tool for the right job. And if you need that money in six months, the right tool is that six-month T-bill. But if you have long-term money that you're saving for retirement or just you know, you want it to grow the next three, four, five years, do not buy a T-bill. You are not doing yourself any favors because you're right. And we always hear this. Well, I'm going to get out now, buy a T-bill. I'll wait till things get better. What you've just said is that you are selling low and buying high. You don't do that. You look at what you need and understand that investing can be volatile. It's going to happen to you. But do not go to T-bills for six months or 12 months until, quote unquote, things get better. You're going to be end up buying at a higher price. And we just tell people, don't look at your stuff every single day. Don't look at every single month. I mean, it's not going to help you. You know, look at it once a year. You're going to have good years and bad years. So if you want that newsletter, because, again, this uh, comes from our newsletter. It goes out every Friday at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, also, in addition to the topics we just talked about, we have information on the oil market, uh, the FDIC, banking, Federal Reserve. It is a free newsletter. All you need to do is go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Well, I forgot to give out the phone numbers uh, between the last one here. Uh, we're going to open the phone lines here for that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Phone number 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. And we do accept emails. We got an email last week. It was actually after the show or during the show. Uh, no, it was actually after the show at 9.53. You can send us our email questions at smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can either send them to my email or Chase's email. We'll read them right here. So we got this email uh, last Saturday from, uh, where's his name? I just saw it, Dennis. Uh, if you have time on your show uh, tomorrow, could you review Citizens Financial Group, CFG, with its recent drop? I'm thinking of adding more shares to my portfolio. My CFG holdings will still be under 5% of my portfolio. Would love to get your opinion on this. Unfortunately, I won't be able to listen to the show tomorrow, but I will catch it on the podcast. Love the show and the newsletter. So uh, let's look at this for Dennis, and we'll comment about uh, his, his thing here. And I, I didn't get to pull it up here because I uh, I was actually looking at the email. So let me see. What did I say? It was CFG. Uh, okay. So Citizens Financial Group. And I believe that's a regional bank, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. I, and I think they might be the ones who bought Signature Bank. Really? Okay. I was just looking that up. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's see here. Well, yeah. So CFG Citizens Financial Group is in the regional bank industry. Five point two percent float. That's kind of in the middle. It's not bad. It's not good. Interest ownership is ninety four point one. The PE ratio very good. Six point three versus seven point nine. I will point out the S and P five hundred has a PE ratio of twenty four point one pretty expensive. Price to sales, 1.5 versus two. Price to book value, this tangible book value, 0.9 versus 2.7. And we see price to cash flow, 3.5 versus 4.4. The peg ratio, which is your price earnings divided by the growth, is 7.1 
versus 4.7. You do want that lower, not higher. Now, their earnings over the last year were down 11.7%. Industry was up 160.1%. Citizens Financial Group, they saw their sales increase by 28.7%, which was better uh, than the industry growth at 10.3. The five-year earnings growth for uh, Citizen Financial Group is a 0.9% versus 3.6. They do now pay a 6.4% dividend yield and only use 39.5% 39.5% of their earnings to pay that out. That's pretty strong. Uh, we do see that the there are banks, so no current ratio. Debt to equity looking good, 0.8 versus 1.3. Net profit margin, 25.4. That's very close to the industry at 26.8. And return on equity, 8.5 versus 11.1. Chase? Yeah, so I, I was actually wrong on that. Signature Bank was bought by New York Community Bank Corp, so I was way off. Wait, they were bought by? Who? No. Signature Bank, because I said oh, Signature, Signature was Bank. bought. Okay, gotcha. No, uh, Signature Bank was bought by New York Community Bank. And Silicon Valley Bank, that's where I was getting a little confused. It was bought by First Citizens Bank. So very similar to Citizens very Financial yes. Group. So I was like, Citizens kind of is what, what threw me off there. But either way, we'll look at the current price here for, again, Citizens Financial Group, CFG is that ticker symbol. $26.18, yep. Not surprised here. 52-week high, $44.82. So well off that. 52-week lows, $23.37. And the uh, year-to-date return, down 31.9%. Now, if we go forward to December 2024, it do see estimated earnings per share of $4.36. I mean, it gives us a target sell price of $72.38. Trades at a forward PE of six times. I mean, it's a very inexpensive asset at this point. Now, I will say these regional banks they they, they scare me mm-hmm. because I, I think that obviously the valuations look great on them, but I I still believe that a First Republic Bank, for example, was in a, a good spot. They didn't take on risky loans and so forth. I mean, they were kind of impacted, I think, by short selling and people's fear and seeing that stock price fall led them to go take their money out of First Republic's bank that cause them to collapse. Now, I don't know Citizens Financial Group. I don't know how much they have, who their customers are, what do they have over the $250,000 limit? Because even after the $250,000 limit was kind of taken away, I'm going to say, right. First Republic still failed. Right. So that's where the regionals scare me a little bit. And I think the smaller regionals, I think your your U.S. banks, your PNCs are still okay, but I still think some of these other regionals, they're, they're still very risky not because of maybe the fundamentals look bad, but if there is a bank run on them, they, they can disappear very quickly. Well, and, and we did invest in a bank situation that we'll, we'll call it uh, in this area that, that dropped dramatically because of the situation. We bought it. Uh, we're not looking for a quick turnaround in it. We're saying that you know by the end of 2024, maybe 2025, we could be up 30, 40%. Now that's about a 15% return per year. I'm thrilled if I get a 15% return per year. It may take two years to get that kind of talking about earlier, but that's what you have to be patient with if you're doing this. But you got to make sure the one that we have that we bought, we won't tell you what it is because it's, you know, for our clients, um, is I see no chance at all that falling. If that were to fall, we'd have major economic collapse. A one like a citizens financial group could happen. Or what could happen on the positive side is I think there's going to be consolidation in years to come of banks being picked up by the big banks. And I, I think right now, I think I said before, there's 4,000 banks in our country. I do believe that's going to decrease over the next five years. 
So some of these will be picked up at a good price. But to answer Dennis's question, he's got, he said, uh, will still be under 5%. I'm not sure what the percent is of the portfolio now that it is because he didn't give us that answer and then what he's going to add to it because, you know, when we do our portfolios concentrate, we do go 6%. So if we had a company that we had and it fell, we look at the company, maybe it's now 3% of the portfolio, we may add to it to bring it back up to 6%. So, uh, Dennis, it really depends on how much you're at now because he said he adds to it. It'll still be under that. Yeah, so yeah. he would target a 5%, 5% allocation, yeah. which wouldn't be over-concentrated. But, yeah, I mean, it's just it's such a hard situation because these regional banks, I mean, the, the financials can look very strong. They can, they can you know, basically be doing okay. But if all of a sudden that, that bank run happens, I mean, it, you lose everything. Right. You know, it, that that's where you got to understand the risk here. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about Citizens Financial Group, so you would really have to – look at, I guess, kind of their money flows, how have deposits been holding up again, how concentrated is that deposit base? There's a lot of questions that, that you would have to look at outside of just the valuation measures and even debt levels because, you know, banks do operate quite differently than your traditional businesses and all of a sudden they lose that capital. That's where that, that business folds, not necessarily because they had risky loans or anything like that, but if they lose their capital, uh, that bank's done for. So yeah. it just takes a lot more research. I mean, the numbers look great. I think a citizen's financial, I, you know, I, I mean, it, <laughs> in, in three, five years from now, I, I mean, you could easily have like that bank up 300% or something yeah. if it goes I, well. I don't 300%, but maybe two. Two hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if it grow, <laughs> I mean, lot. if they consolidate, I mean, right. it'd be something that that would be right. a huge return. I guess yeah. I, is is my point, but it, it could also go to zero, which I I just I don't know if I would feel comfortable right. in in this type of investment at this you, point. If you're gonna do this investing like we did on what we invested in, you really gotta understand the business. What do they have? All these important facts. I mean, that's what you talk about before you invest in anything. It's 10, 15, 20 hours of research. You really got to spend that research because you don't want to buy the next regional bank that's going to go under. You want you want to buy one that's either going to be you know taken taken over by a bigger bank because they're so good, or still in business three to four years. From now. Mm -hmm. So, and even if I'm going to say real quick, I know we got to go to Harrison, but even if we have other regional banks, I'm going to say fail. Like, right. I don't think the banking system is not weak. The banking system is not in a bad spot. It's just people's emotions is what's causing these, these well, bank that failures. that's what happens. I mm -hmm. mean, it, you know, emotions drive what's going on, unfortunately, because that, that can cause a recession. We talk about yeah. people think there's a recession. Even if there's not, they'll create the recession because they think there's one. Same thing with investing. If they think it's going to go down, they may, they may do things and pull their money and cause problems. So it's emotional, and that's why... You know, you, you, you can't be emotional about investing. You have to look at the, the, the numbers there. So I, I was going to go to Phil first in San Marcos because I did want to talk about 3M uh, Company, but I also want to hope that uh, Phil can hold on because I do want to go to Harrison uh, or CFP because I, I want to talk about the, the mortgage situation. Uh, Harrison, good morning. Uh, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I really wanted to talk to uh, this topic today because I know a lot of people are in this, and now that rates have gone up, uh, is it a bad time, good time? But the question is, should you pay off your mortgage? Yeah, so interest rates are higher. So the conversation has changed in the last few years. Uh, let's say you've got a mortgage now with a 6.5% interest rate. That's about where they are now. Um, the first thing to look at is, is that interest deductible? Technically, mortgage interest is a deductible expense on your Schedule A, um, but you only get a tax benefit if you itemize your deduction. The main itemized deductions are state income taxes, property taxes, mortgage interest, and then charity deductions. 
And everyone gets a default deduction called a standard deduction when they file their taxes for single filers, uh, $13,850. For joint filers, it's $27,700. So to get a tax benefit from itemizing your deductions, they have to add up to be greater than that standard deduction. Uh, after the tax changes in 2017, it's less common to itemize, but since property values are so large in California, it's a lot more common for residents here to itemize when they have a mortgage and they have a property. So if you have a 6.5% mortgage and it's deductible, that means your after-tax interest rate is somewhere between 3 and 3 quarters and 4.5%, depending on your tax bracket. It's not as nice as the 2% days you know, a few years ago, but it's still not as bad as it seems. So if that interest is deductible, you might better off uh, investing your money somewhere else, for example, paying off other higher interest debt or putting money into retirement accounts to make sure you're getting your match and the tax deduction for that. Uh, but the other thing that I think is important to understand about mortgages is your monthly payment is due every single month. So just because you apply a lump sum payment to your loan or you've been making extra payments, that doesn't mean you can then skip payments for a few months. Some people are so worried about not being able to make their payment that they try to pay it off as fast as they can. But then when they run into a jam, they don't have the adequate savings or other investments set aside to lean on, and then they end up not being able to make their payment. So for example, if you've got a 30-year loan, but you're on track to pay it off in 20 years, well, if you lose your job in year 10, you've still got another 10 years to go. So you better make sure that you've got other reserves to help make it through that. That's why it's important to invest while you're also paying your mortgage because those investments can then be used to supplement your income if you need it. And, and Harrison, what about uh, for people to, and again, we always talk about planning, you know, uh, other ideas and so forth, because you mentioned a good point. You're paying your mortgage off early. Everything's fine. Oh, my gosh, you just lost your job. You don't have the reserves. You could lose that house. This is why we also talk about in our office about having preparing for the future is, is set up a line of credit against that house because when you got a job, sure, you can get it. You lose your job, you're on the bank like, hey, I just lost my job. Can I borrow against my house? Nope, sorry, you don't have a job. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I mean, with the line of credit, that's just a, an access to liquidity, which means you might not need to have as much cash reserve set aside. And with the line of credit, if you don't need it, it doesn't cost anything to set up or, or maintain. And then also, too, you know, you got your equities as well. What's it called? Uh, S-Block, Chase? Yeah, it's an S-Block. Security-backed line of credit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and these are things that you do as a planner is you think about these things that people don't think about until many times it's too late. Yeah, and that's that's exactly the point. You know, you can kind of be chugging along and everything's going fine, but then when, when something unexpected happens, well, now you're not really in a position to handle that, and that's when you know, mistakes can be made or you can just be in a bad situation that, that really hurts you. Yeah. And also too, when you, you talk about those interest rates is again, the, the opportunity cost of what your money could be doing for you about the 401k, maybe it's Roth IRAs is, you know, now you're, you're perhaps foregoing a tax deferred or perhaps even that tax free benefit with the, the Roth IRA to save, what do you say, call it 4% even on interest. And your money should be working for you better than 4% a year. Again, you're going to have, we talked about earlier in the show, the volatility. But over the you know, 7, 10-year period, you should average more than 4% with good investments in the long term there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I always say some leverage is good. Too much leverage is going to kill you. Yep. So, 
I don't, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't always say that. I just came up with that. Now yeah. I, I always say, <laughs> starting now. Starting now. <laughs> well, Harrison, thank you very much. Uh, a great topic, I'm sure a lot of people, and I've seen people pay off their mortgage like, oh my gosh, why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense at all. But um, that's why, again, they need a good financial planner that can go through the numbers with them to... And the reason why people do things they don't understand is emotional. Emotional. And all these crazy things out there like, oh, you know, pay off your mortgage is much better. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Depends on things. That's why you need to sit down with Harrison, kind of go with the numbers in your financial plan. Harrison, thank you very much. We'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Again, that's uh, Harrison Johnson. He is our financial planner. He's a CFP. Uh, he is on a salary. He does not sell life insurance or annuities. His job is to really do a financial plan for you. If you'd like to have a free consultation to see if a financial plan could benefit you or you just want to talk to somebody that's smart about the entire financial picture of your life, we'll call it, uh, give him a call at the office, 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858 858- Five four six four three zero six, or go to the website smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Send them an email, send them an appointment that way. But I, I really will tell you, I promise you that when you sit down and talk with me and say like, wow, there's things I didn't even think about. So, all right, phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Uh, let's go to San Marcos and speak with Phil. Phil, you're in the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey, good morning, guys. How you guys doing? Good. How you doing? Hey, good. Um, wanted to discuss 3M. And actually, I think um, a previous caller several months back talked about them. And you guys gave some interesting insights. I had it on my watch research list. Uh-huh. And they're very interesting in the sense that um, I think they operate in four major segments safety, transportation, electronics, healthcare, and consumer. And Chase, I think you mentioned a comment where, you know, in the COVID days, I think they cleaned up in the safety and PPP, PPE mm-hmm. area. Masks. And that could be a trigger that it might, yeah, mask and things like that, where post-COVID they could see declines in revenues, but that would almost be like a, not, I don't know what term you use, like a trick measure and now that they've dropped below 100, I wanted to get your guys' feedback on them because their financials look solid, and I've been looking to see when's a good time to get in. I don't own any of it now, so curious on your comments on 3M. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with the numbers for you. I know I know the big problem, I think, with 3M now is the lawsuits that are pending. Now, now one thing you'll probably see it, I guess, probably in the, the 10K is have they set up any reserves for the lawsuits? And you never know how much the lawsuits will be. I mean, jury trials are always questionable what's gonna come out, but I would presume they've put out some reserves for the legal re- legal losses they could sustain, which is very important. They put away a billion, they put away 20 billion. You, you're kind of looking, you're not sure have you. When you say the lawsuits, uh, is there, is, I know they had the ear is there other are the other lawsuits? There is well? another. There, there's another one too, and I forget what it is. But there's yeah. two lawsuits that are that are against them, and uh, and again, they've not been settled yet. But and, and that's one thing too. They could be settled. So my point being is that you want to kind of look at this. We can't see it when we go to these numbers. Have they put? And if so, how much have they put into reserves? for pending settlements or lawsuits. So, uh, because I'm gonna go with the numbers. I know the numbers, I think, for 3M, 
uh, is something that looks very good. They are in the industry conglomerates. Uh, amazing with these suits out there, they only have a 2.2% uh, float on the short side, so that's a positive. Uh, look at the P.E. ratio, 10.2 versus 11.9. Price to sales, 1.7 versus 0.6. Price to book value. Now, book value is not material versus 9.1 because I think they have a lot of goodwill on their balance sheet. But price to cash flow is also kind of expensive here. Surprise. Uh, 9.5 versus 6.6. They do have a good peg ratio, 7.1 versus 44. We see that they have uh, earnings over the last uh, year were up 0.7%. Doesn't show anything on the sales, which is strange. I don't know if they just reported recently because we just don't see anything on the sales. I'm sorry, the earnings growth. Uh, we do see the sales growth was down 5.4% for 3M, but the industry was up 212 uh, The five-year estimated growth is only one6 for 3M, but for the whole industry, only 2.1%. They do pay a very nice dividend of 6.1% and only use 61.5% of their earnings to pay that out. The balance sheet, you got a current ratio 1.4, same as the industry. Debt equity 1.1, also the same as the industry. Net profit margin 16.3 versus 6.2. Return on equity is 35.7 versus 14.9. And then return on invested capital, also good, 18.4 versus 9.5. Chase? Well, I did look up the lawsuit thing just because I was curious on it. And so far, this is an article actually in May, uh, so just a few days ago, Couple weeks ago, perhaps, but it says 3M has lost 10 of the 16 cases that have gone to trial so far, with a total of $265 million awarded to 13 plaintiffs. But the liability, uh, based off JP Morgan, is there's about 200,000 plaintiffs. Oh, and wow. if you take the average settlement value, the simple math on that gets you to north of $10 billion to $20 billion. So I think that might be a little egregious potentially. But yeah. it is a potential liability out there that, that you, you got to understand where that kind of stands. And it may not show up, but you only see the one lawsuit. I thought for sure there was like a, another lawsuit because I saw it like, oh, my gosh, this, this poor company. But you didn't see anything else, just that one? You know, I I, I only had a couple minutes while you were talking. <laughs> yeah, so. and, 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 and Phil and anybody else on, that listened to the show, this is why it takes so long to invest in the company because you got a lot, a lot of research to really understand what's going on. But I'll, I'll let you continue. But we can't do everything in two minutes, you're right. Yeah, so I, I mean, I would want to know if there's another lawsuit because that, that is quite a large one. I, I would want to just kind of stay on top of that. That could be a, a potential, I'm going to say perhaps even a potential opportunity. I mean, sometimes we like companies in lawsuits unless the uh, liability just becomes too much for that company. So it, it, it's definitely worth the research there, especially when I look at the current numbers because the current price for 3M, $99.03. 52-week highs, $152.30. And the 52-week low is $98. Year-to-date, the stock is down 15.1%. Now, if we go out to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share of $9.56. Would give us a target sell price of $158.70. So it trades at a forward PE multiple of around 10, 10 and a half times. I mean, the, the numbers look very intriguing and I, I like the concept here. And, and what I mean by that is if COVID kind of created this sped up cycle where right. earnings went way up, because now I see 2023 earnings are estimated to actually decline 14% this year. If a lot of that still continued kind of fall out from COVID, I like that as an opportunity because they need to get back to a normalized business where they went way up in earnings and then went way down okay. in earnings. And then after that normalizes, they could be back on a path of just, I'm going to say solid, steady earnings growth, which could really present, I think, a lot of good opportunities in businesses that had COVID booms 
and now more of a normalization period is what I'll call it. And, and a couple things uh, <clears throat> as well, Phil, is that I, I wonder how they're doing compared to 2019, take out uh, take out the COVID situation. I, I think between 2019, they're probably doing better now than 2019. But the other thing too, I looked at the cash on the, the balance sheet, they only have $4 billion in cash. If those lawsuits could be as high as $10 billion, that could be a problem. But then you also wanna find out too, do they have insurance? More than likely, they probably have insurance to cover it, but maybe not. So that could be a, a devastating thing for them. So a lot of things to look at here, Phil. Uh, we just don't have cash in our portfolio because this is one that Chase and I have talked about, like, gosh, we, we'd like to do more research on, but we say, well, what's the point? Because we, we're pretty well fully invested, so we don't have anything we can buy with it. But I, I think it's definitely worth the research, uh, but you gotta understand it because lawsuits can really come out of left field. And you can see the stock retrading at 50 because they, they lost. And you said how many, 10,000? Uh, 10, 10 to 20 billion is what J, JP Morgan said the, yeah. the potential liability well, the could plaintiffs, be. Uh, the plaintiffs. Oh, 200,000. 200,000 plaintiffs, yeah, yeah. So so that, that's where you're saying, Phil. Yeah, two just last comments on that, and then I'll uh, sign off. Sure. Um, one, wouldn't we see some sort of footnote in their 10K statements that come out quarterly, or their 10Q, I'm sorry. And then two, I know, and I'm going to completely go off topic here. You we were talking about money market and things like that. I usually put my liquid cash in like a Discover American Express because that you can get that at any time, and they're giving you three percent. So curious on the 10Q. If I haven't looked at any of them, I'm just starting my research, but figured they'd have some sort of information in the in those 10Qs. Yeah, I mean they're they're like a hundred pages long, so generally they'll have. I, I mean that is the the 10Q and then uh, the 10Ks actually generally are even longer than the 10Qs because it covers the full year. But generally those will have you know more information and, and really kind of break down where they stand on the lawsuit because what they also do in the um, the filing there is they also present potential risks in that filing. So that might be in there with the legal risks and they, they might actually call out these potential lawsuits in particular. So uh, I, I'd i have to assume they're in there somewhere. Yeah. And Chase always talks about how when he, he's the head of the party, when he goes to party, he always brings a 10K with him along. I mean, people just love talking <laughs> to Chase at those parties. <laughs> Great time. And then I guess to answer your question on the money market is, yeah, I'm hit. I think people sometimes they, they try too hard to try and find yield where they're they're like oh I'm, I'm gonna I can get four percent instead of three point nine percent yeah it's like you know I I think if you're I like just the high yield savings account I know there's a CIT bank which is FDIC insured I think last time I saw their their high yield savings account was like four point seven five percent just with a high yield just a high yield saving wow. and it's like kind of like you were saying Phil it's like I'd almost rather just put my money there rather than a six month T bill just because it's liquid yeah. yeah it's just there it's available yeah but, completely yeah i mean agree. You, the I, only thing is it takes three days to get your money because you don't you can't walk into a branch but who cares yeah and and, and the thing too is you, you got to be careful to uh, how much you have in there yeah. because if you don't have enough money say you got five thousand dollars is it really worth all the effort to get yeah. that extra amount but if you have a hundred thousand dollars then you have to say well wait a minute if i don't need this money short term yeah it will get a higher yield on it but I should be investing most of that 100000 now. So you really got to think through things to understand what's going to benefit you long-term, not what feels good now. Uh, but good point yep. on, on, on the liquid money there. All right, Phil? Hey, thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 
888-789-0973. And we did get another uh, email question here. And again, if you want to send us an email question, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That again, smartinvesting2000.com. Uh, this comes from a Tom. He says, uh, I love listening to your podcast. I was wondering if you could analyze Markel Corp, symbol MKL. I do not own the company, but I am considering purchasing some. Thanks. All right, so let's look at uh, Markel Corporation here. Uh, their symbol is MKL. Uh, and that, that sounds familiar to me. Yeah, I, that one does not sound familiar to oh, me. M, I oh know that's, yeah, no, that's that's something different. M, yeah, it's MLK is Martin Luther King. That, 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 but yeah, that's not a symbol. So, but yeah, MKL, it, it is an insurance property cash. I think we have maybe looked at this before, but uh, they they are, uh, company is MLK, uh, company is Markel. MKL. Uh, not M, did I say MLK? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> symbol, MKL company Markel. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, just real quick, there's people that have bought the wrong companies because of symbols. So we kind of joke about it, but be very careful when you say that symbol or put that symbol in. <laughs> uh, years ago, the guy bought a, the wrong company, lost a, a lot of money because I put the wrong symbol in. So be careful. Uh, they are in the insurance, property, and casualty industry. Uh, 1% flow, 80% institutional owned. Oh my gosh, a PE ratio 67.1 versus 21.7. That's extremely high. Uh, price of sales 1.4 versus one. Price to book value also 1.4 versus 1.6. Price to cash flow is 7.1 versus 8.1. That's a positive. And the peg ratio going forward is only 0.4 for Markel versus 1.8 the industry. Now, earnings were down for Markel 84.2%. The industry is down with 47.3%, so not sure what's going on with this company here. We do see sales over the past year were only up 1.2%. The industry was up 17.5%. Now, they do have wow, a lot of strange numbers here. A great five-year growth rate of 46.9% for the five years from the analysts versus only 9.8%. So it looks like they have problems in the past, but appears to be things could get better going forward. Uh, surprise for an insurance company, they do not pay a dividend. Uh, they don't have a, a current ratio because insurance company debt to equity 0.3, same as the industry. Net profit mar margin 2.6 versus 4.5. Return equity 2 versus 8.5. Gosh, this is just all over the board. You, you got something, Chase? Yeah, I got to go quick here. I know 52 week highs $1,458.56. And the 52-week low is $1,064.09. If I go out to December 2024, the estimated earnings per share is $86.80. Gives the target sell price of $1,440.88. So it's a forward PE of about 15.6 times. I mean, it's it's not inexpensive. And I think there's a lot of lot better property and casualty insurers out there in terms of the valuations. And I, that's why the earnings have declined so much based off our our property and casualty insurance, I know that the cost of labor, the cost of uh, right. parts has really increased. Their catastrophe loss have gone up substantially, so their earnings are quite volatile, plus their investment portfolios with the amount of bonds they carry, that carry negativity in the quarter as well. So I don't like this one too expensive. I think there's other better property casualty insurers. And we like that industry, but just not this one. Yeah. Great. Well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purpose only. It should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 
646-436-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. You're going to sign up for the website. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. To think that I did all that.